Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. I heard a story not long ago of um, a guy that was walking by a construction site. It was just the beginnings of the construction, and they were kind of you know, digging the trenches and getting everything ready to pour the foundation, tying the steel, and all of that kind of thing. And um, the guy walking by, there were three different workers, all doing the same thing, but three of them doing, three, doing the same work on the same construction site, a little bit apart. So he went to each of them, and he just asked them the question, what are you doing here? And the first guy said, I'm digging a trench. <laughs> the second guy said, I'm making a living. And the third guy said, I'm building a cathedral. All three were doing the same thing. One of them had the bigger picture. And that's what we're talking about through this whole series. We're talking about vision. And we define it simply as this. It is the ability to see things not just as they are, but as they could be. To be able to see beyond what is, to see what could and what should be. And it's, and it's, it's a vital thing for us right now as a church and, and also for you in your life as we're starting this new year. To be able to think about your life in this coming year as to what would be, what could be, what should be. And then taking the steps to move in that direction. And it might be something in your own family. It might have to do with your, um, your own life, your career. It might be schooling. Um, it might have a, a vision to do for um, ministry and serving in the church or in the community. But the whole idea is this, that when you begin to wrestle with the tension between the way things are and the way things ought to be, that is the birthplace of vision. That's where it starts. It starts with looking at things and seeing not the way that they are, but the way they ought to be. And then you start wrestling with that tension And usually what happens is God uses that to begin to birth a vision in each of our lives. And my my prayer is twofold for this whole series. Um, And my goal for this church as we go through the series is two. The first is that I would be able to help lead you into a better sense of God's vision for your own life. That you would begin to get some clarity about why God has you at this place and time, in this part of the world, for His eternal purposes. That is part of it. And that's why we've encouraged you to be praying through this whole series. Lord, what do you want to do through me? Lord, let me see things the way you see them. Let me not see just the way things are, but how they ought to be so that I might be a part of making it happen. And then the second goal, my second prayer for this is that we together as a church would be able to unite around our common vision and see where each of us fits in that whole Thing because it all fits really under the bigger picture of what God is doing in this world. And if you're not clear what that is, if you don't even know, if you have no clue what God is up to in this world, um, Paul summarized it very, very succinctly and very well in his letter to the Corinthian church. He wrote this to them. He said, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. It is that simple. That's what God is doing in this world. He is reconciling this world back to himself. And he did it through Jesus Christ. And the record of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, is the process by which God is reconciling the world. And now we, at this point in our lives, at this point in human history, in this area, join in. And that's why vision is so important, that we get a sense of what it is God is doing in this world and how each of us and how we as a church fit into his bigger picture. 
Because people with vision, they know what God is up to in the world. And when you understand what it is that God is up to in the world, and people get that vision, then they begin to invest their time to get in on the action. And invest their talents and their abilities to be able to participate and and, and be a part of ministry to make it happen. And they invest their resources to support the mission and the ministry that God is doing in this world. That's why vision is so important. And when we're confused about it, if we don't understand what it is that God is doing in this world, what happens to Christians who get confused and lose that vision? They begin to lose their enthusiasm for their faith. It becomes bland and dry and they lose the vitality Because the thing that keeps us moving forward is understanding what it is God is doing in this world and what part we play in it. And over time, if we do not maintain the vision, if we are not clear about what it is God wants to do through us as a church and through us as individuals, we will begin to give up. And the vision will die. And over time, it'll just wear out. And particularly, particularly when we face obstacles and roadblocks and detours that slow us down in the progress. And we're looking at through this whole series at the story of Nehemiah. For those of you who haven't been here the last couple of weeks, let me give you a quick update on where things are at. Nehemiah was, and his family were part of the exiles taken from Jerusalem off, um, off to Babylon when, um, when Jerusalem was overrun by the Babylonians. And while his family is there in Babylon, actually the Persians overtake the Babylonians, and now he's in Persia. And he actually rises through the ranks, and though he's a Jew, he becomes one of the chief counselors, the cupbearer to the king. And while he is there, uh, the Persians have allowed some of uh, the exiles to go back to Jerusalem. And so over about a period, about 80, 85 years, slowly people more and more are making their way back to Jerusalem. Well, one of his family members comes visits him in Persia, and he's got a pretty cushy life. He's got a good life going on there. But he asks him, how are things back home? And the report that he gets is, not good. Because even though the people are returning, they're still broken. And even though they're moving back into the city, the place is a shambles. And in fact, all of the protection, all the fortification, all the walls around the city are still in ruins. And the place has fallen apart. And it so grips him that the people that are his heritage, that are the people of God, are defenseless and broken and facing intimate attack. He has to do something about it. And he begins to wrestle between the way things are and the way things ought to be. And out of that, births this vision to go back and rebuild the walls. And he asks the king for permission. Not only does he get permission, he gets building materials. He gets rites of passage. He gets everything that he needs to go back. He makes his way back to Jerusalem. He shares the vision with the people. He rallies the troops. Everybody joins into the work. And he starts assigning jobs all along the wall. And every family has a different place in the wall. And everything is stood, And work is going on. And it's all coming together really, really good. Except that about halfway through the project, they start bumping into these roadblocks. We started to look at one of them last week. The people just started to get tired. And then as we look this week in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he continues to come up against all these roadblocks. And, and here's the thing. To fulfill God's vision for your life, for us to fulfill God's vision for us as a church, we are going to encounter roadblocks. We are going to get tired. Things will come up to get in the way. And what we need to develop and what you need to develop in your own life is this staying power. How do you keep going through the roadblocks? How do you get around the detours? How do you get through the speed? How do you keep going when you feel like giving up? And it's this key that is called staying power. And as you look through Nehemiah's story, particularly in chapters 4, 5, and 6, there are some key elements to developing staying power in your own life. 
staying power in the vision God has for you. And that's what we're going to look at because he made some very, very key decisions along the way. And in this, there are keys there for us developing staying power. One of the first things, and maybe, well, I don't know if it's the most important, but it's certainly one of the first ones, is simply remember your motivation. Remember why it is you are doing what you are doing. Because here's the thing. When you get a vision... When you begin to decide you want to make a difference with your life, when you begin to decide you want to serve God, you want to make changes in your life, you really want to bring your life more in line with God, when you do that, it will attract critics. Because that's what vision does. Vision has this way that seems to attract criticism and ridicule. And the reason for that is, in case you were wondering, is simply this. It makes everybody else feel uncomfortable. Because when you decide to do something with your life and they're not doing anything with their lives, they look at you and it makes them feel bad. It's threatening to them. And instead of getting off the can and start doing their own thing, they look at you and try and hold you back. And that's what happens. That's why vision always attracts criticism. It makes other people uncomfortable. Instead of for them to move forward in their own life, they would rather hold you back and tear you down. And anytime you make a decision that you want to serve God, that you want to make a difference in this world, that you want your life to be changed, you will find tons of people to tell you why you shouldn't do it, why you can't do it, why you ought to give up on the project. And that's what happens. These two guys, we we saw them a little bit last week. Their names are Sanballat and Tobiah. And these guys are governors over the neighboring provinces. Say that five times fast. Um... And, and they're threatened by what's going on because Jerusalem is being rebuilt. The fortifications are coming. They're, they're making themselves safe again. They're rebuilding what has been broken, and that's threatening to them. And so here's what they do. They engage in what the ancient world version is of trash talk. Okay? That's basically what they do. They begin to say, Sam Ballot says, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? And what he's doing is just trying to undermine their confidence. And notice how he does it, by the way. He does it with questions. And what he's doing, he is playing on their own questions, their own self-doubt. And so when he says things like, what are those feeble Jews doing? What he's doing, he's just questioning their ability. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? You can't do that. Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in the day? He's questioning their commitment. They think this is an easy project that they're just going to wrap up real quickly in a day. Oh, man, they won't outlast. This thing's going to take forever. And they don't have the strength. They don't have the commitment to follow through. Will they bring stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? He is questioning their confidence. And every question that he raises are all the questions that I think they're all dealing with themselves. They have actually recently unearthed a portion of the wall of Jerusalem they believe to be Nehemiah's wall, just in 2007. And and they believe it to really be the section of wall, or a section of wall that was repaired during Nehemiah's time. And as they unearthed it, what they discovered is this portion of wall is really not well built. (laughs) Because remember, these weren't skilled craftsmen. And this was everybody kind of getting into the act whether they knew what they were doing or not. And what they found is that that this section of the wall is actually not very well built and the stones that are used have obviously been used before. It's not good quality stuff. And so when when Sam Ballad is bringing all these questions, he is dealing with all of their own questioning that's going on in their own minds. It It was 
rubble they were working with. They were not skilled people. It was questionable about whether they could finish the task. And then Tobiah comes along and he even adds this bit. Even if, a, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. In other words, he's saying, even if they complete the work, even if they get it all finished, it's not going to last. If the smallest animal jumps up on it, the whole thing's going to turn to a pile of rubble all over again. And what he is doing is in essence saying, why bother? Because even if you finish it, it's just going to be wasted effort anyway. And what they are doing is they are subtly raising all of the questions these guys have themselves. He is playing on their own self-doubt. And Nehemiah is faced with a problem because people are already getting tired and now they're getting discouraged and he's got to do something about that. The very first thing he does is he goes to prayer. And and you read the prayer, by the way. I don't have time to go into it this morning. But basically he tells God, strike these people dead. Will you? Get them out of my way. You know, I want to complete that. Now, I don't know if you think you can pray like that or not, but what he's doing is he's just pouring out his anger and his frustration to God because he can't really deal with anybody else in all of this. But he brings it to God. And as he does that in prayer, he gets encouragement. And this is what he does. After he prays, he comes back to the people and he makes this declaration because not only have they now ridiculed them, there's also, they found out, a secret attack being planned against them. And this is what Nehemiah says to them when he comes back. He says to the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. What he is doing is he says, listen, this was not our idea in the first place. This is a God thing we're doing here. And yeah, if we did it in our own strength and by our own abilities, it would fall apart. But we're not doing it in our own strength. And it isn't just our idea. And it's not just something that we put together. It is a God work. Remember that. And when God is at work, He is strong and He is awesome. And He says, also remember who you're doing it for. You are doing it for your families. You are doing it out of your commitment and your love to God and your commitment and your love to people, which is the essence of what Jesus talked about centuries later when asked, what are the two greatest commandments? Your love for God and your love for people. And here it is at the Old Testament. And that's what Nehemiah is saying. This is your motivation. This is how you keep going when you start hitting roadblocks. You remember why you are doing it. You are doing it for the sake of God and for the sake of God's community. You are doing it out of your love for Him and your love for other people. Remember, this is a vision. It is not yet finished. It is something that could be and should be. It is not yet. So keep working. Because the strongest motivation you can find for anything that you do in this world is out of your love for God, not out of your love for people. And sometimes the best thing you can do is just stop and remember that. This matters to God. This matters to the people I care about. A second thing that strongly encourages and keeps us going with staying power is to work at preserving unity. He deals with the first roadblock and they actually successfully get through it and it says the people went back to work and they worked at it with all their heart. But now as they're going through it and the wall's kind of going further on and things are getting closer to finish, he encounters a second roadblock. And this one is more, more destructive because it's not an enemy on the outside, it's the enemy within. 
See, not everybody bought into the vision. We looked at that last week. There was a whole group of people that just refused to do the work. Now there's another group of people. In fact, there might even be some of the same people. But what they have done now is they have seen this vision to be an opportunity for themselves to make a buck. Because what happened is everybody's kind of given themselves to the work. And because they're giving themselves to the work of rebuilding the wall, they are neglecting their regular jobs. And all the people that used to be out and farming, you know, tilling the soil and planting and tending to their, their, their crops and everything, they were working the fields, that has been neglected because they've given their time to the rebuilding of the wall. Well, it doesn't take long of neglecting fields before things start to fall apart. And what happens is a famine, famine results from it because they haven't been able to give their time and attention to their own well-being, their own crops. And here's what happened. There was a group of people that had resources, and they thought, here's our chance. So when the people ran out of grain, they said, oh, we'll give you grain. You can buy grain for us. Well, I don't have any money. Well, here, we'll loan you the grain, but you're going to have to sign over your fields as collateral for your grain. Well, what are you going to do? You got to eat. Your family's got to eat. So they did. They signed over. They mortgaged their fields to these guys. Well, eventually that kind of ran out. And now they're running out. And, 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 and not only on top of that, they've got to pay taxes. You know, it's April 15th. And King Artaxerxes wants his due, you know. So now they've got to pay their taxes. And that's a huge tax burden. And they don't have the resources to do that either. Well, these other guys, they still got the resources. Oh, we'll loan you the money but you're going to have to give us a field and collateral. Well, I don't have a field. I already gave that to you. Okay, well, then you've got to give us your sons and your daughters. We'll hold them. We'll make them work for us. They'll be your collateral. And what they did was they took advantage of a situation to take care of themselves. Well, it doesn't take long before that has a ripple effect because these guys were only in it for themselves. What happens to the people that have been giving all the sacrifices and working so hard on the wall and they're getting nothing out of the deal? In fact, they're losing out of the deal they get a little frustrated. They get angry. And they walk off the job. We quit. They throw down their picks and shovels. We quit. I got to take care of my family. I can't work on the wall anymore. I gotta, it, nobody's taking care of my family. These guys are taking care of themselves. I got to take care of myself. It's every family for themselves. And so they're ready to walk off the job. And they come and it says a great cry came to Nehemiah from these people. And this is what they said. We are mortgaging our fields our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during this famine. And we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Not only have we mortgaged them, but we're still paying taxes on them. And these guys have made it, they've just, they've taken over the whole thing. Now, Nehemiah is really faced with something because this is, this is incredible stuff. Because it's, it's bad enough when the enemies, but you can kind of rally together when there's an outside enemy. But when it's happening within... This whole project is going to come to a grinding halt. Nothing, nothing will kill a vision like disunity. Nothing will kill a vision than when people start looking out for their own self-interest. And in my experience, it's not always so devious and underhanded. Sometimes it simply comes out of, out of a legitimate need or a legitimate desire or passion for something. But what happens is a little at a time, people kind of get tugging in different directions. And instead of everybody working together and pulling forward and moving in the same direction, they start getting little pulls to the side. Andy Stanley, like it's in his book, to, to the front end alignment of your car. When everything is aligned, you drive straight, everything's great. 
when your wheels are out of alignment, the front end is out of alignment, you feel this little pull to the right or a little pull to the left. And yeah, you can overcompensate for it for a while, but it gets harder and harder. And in the meantime, all the parts of your car wear out because of it. And that's what happens when you lose alignment in the vision. When people start pulling their own little directions, instead of working together, we start working apart. And nothing will destroy a vision faster than disunity and dissension. Nothing will kill the direction of a church more than people pulling in opposite directions. And it's not going to take care of itself. It has to be addressed. Because what happens is people see a need and they say, we ought to do something about that. And so they start doing something about that. And somebody else says, well, no, that, that's not that important. We ought to be doing this over here. And they start pulling. They say, but yeah, but you do that. You're forgetting all about this over here. And what happens is everybody starts pulling in a different direction. And instead of thinking about what's best for the church as a whole, they start thinking about what's best for me and my interests. What are the things that I am interested in? And it starts to pull things apart. And if it's not addressed, it will only get worse. And so Nehemiah has to address it. And this is what he does. He confronts them. He goes directly to them. He says, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? He says, not only are you discouraging your own people, but you're making us a laughingstock to those on the outside. And when a church is divided, when there's infighting, when everybody's kind of scrambling for themselves, and people on the outside look at that and they say, why would I want to be a part of that? And I look at it and I say, why would I want to be a part of that? <laughs> not only is it discouraging to those on the inside, it makes a mockery to those on the outside. And from time to time, I have people who are dealing with relational issues or, or particular personality clashes or something that's gone wrong and, and they come and they talk to me and they want to pour out and just kind of spill their guts and say how angry they are and how hurt they've been and all this. All that. And, and finally, in all of my great wisdom and counseling experience, I simply say, well, have you talked to them about it? Great insight. <laughs> well, no, I, I guess I should. Yeah, you should. Yeah, you should, because it might make you feel good spilling your guts to me, and you might think, you know, it, it, it makes you just feel a whole lot better when you can kind of vent all your anger at me, but I'm not the problem, and I'm not the issue. You've got to deal with this head-on with the person, because if all you do is keep talking to other people, if all you do is kind of see talking behind people's back, you know what you do? You just create more tension and more enemies, because now you've got more people not liking that guy, which maybe was your intent, but that's not good for unity. And so what Nehemiah does is he brings it back to the source. And he says, listen, guys, this isn't right. You cannot do this. Not only does it destroy the unity and the vision that we have for our city, not only does it destroy the, the morale of God's people, but it makes us a laughingstock to those looking on from the outside. And because he does that, they actually respond. You're right. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Now, that is an incredible thing. That is an incredible thing because Nehemiah was willing to face it head on. He was able to get people back with the same focus, 
the same vision, moving in the same direction. And that is incredibly powerful stuff. Unity is absolutely essential to fulfill any vision. We've all got to be pulling in the same direction. We've got to be working for the same goals or it's not going to happen. Now, the reason Nehemiah could do that is he had a lot of clout, not because of his position as governor, but because of his personal integrity. And that is another thing. When it comes to developing staying power, you need to be able to maintain your own integrity, which means simply this, that what I say and what I do are the same thing. The thing that gave Nehemiah clout was this. It was his own personal commitment to the task. He didn't use the vision for his own benefit like these other guys did. In fact, it says he gave of his own to be able to make it happen. Now, he was appointed by the king to be governor over Judah. He, was, he had an official position, and with that came certain perks. He had the ability to levy taxes. He had the absolute legal right to be able to levy taxes on the people. And as long as King Artaxerxes got his part of it, Nehemiah could keep whatever else he wanted. He had that full right and authority. He also had the authority. He could come in and confiscate any piece of property he wanted. If he saw a field that he liked or a vineyard that he wanted to have for himself, he would just simply say, you're going to sell that to me. And by the way, here's all I'm going to pay for it. And they had no choice. And in fact, every governor that had been there before him practiced that. That's what he writes about in verse 15, chapter 5. The earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. They came in, they came in heavy-handed. They took everything they could for this thing. But he goes on, he says, but not me. Out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. And all my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. In fact, he goes on in verse 18, he says, I never demanded even the food allotment for the governor because the demands were already heavy on these people. I could have done all those things, but I chose not to. And because he chose not to, it gave him credibility with the people. He could stand in front of those nobles because he could say to them, listen, I have every right to do anything that you're doing and more, but I chose not to do it. And his credibility by his actions that he walked the talk gave him, gave him the moral authority to confront them because he knew what was at stake. What was at stake was the community of God. And that was more important than his own personal enrichment. Here's why this is so important, folks. Because critical to the unity and vision of this church critical to the unity and vision of this church is that you and I personally, individually, buy in to the vision. And that's why we're doing this series. And that's why I've been praying through this series and, and teaching through this series and setting a goal for this series that we would not only discover our own personal individual vision for, for our own lives, but see how that fits in the bigger picture of what God is doing in our church so that we would unite together around the vision. And what that means is that each and every one of us would be able to point to something and say, here is how I am fulfilling the vision. We have said as a church, our vision and our goal and our mission is to help unchurched people become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. And every one of us, if we're going to personalize this and internalize it, we ought to be able to point and say, here is how I am helping making that vision happen. 
Here is how I am helping lead people to become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. Here is how I am tending to my own connection with God. I am making it a priority to be in worship with God's people. I am taking time to nurture my own soul and my own relationship with God. I am giving that a priority. I am reorienting all of my life around that thing. And with that, I am also a part of what God is doing in our church. And I have become a part. These are the group of people. This is my community group. This is the group of people that I have said, I am committing myself to you. And we're going to do life together. And we are going to learn and we are going to grow and we are going to encourage and we are going to do everything to care for each other along the way. And I am committed to this group of people. And this is who they are. And this is the ministry where I am serving. This is the thing that I do that helps this church fulfill that mission of helping people become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. And these are the people that I am praying for. These are the people in my family, my neighbors, my community, on my job, in my school. These are the people that I am personally praying for and trying to share my faith and invite and bring along so that we can fulfill our vision of helping unchurched people become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. No excuses. No excuses. And I'm getting worked up again, but this is the thing. If we do not to a person individually say, I'm on board, then your part of it will not be completed. It is one thing to say, I go to a church and this is their mission statement and I come and sit on Sunday mornings and I watch it happen. And that is far different than saying, I'm doing my part in making it happened. And sometimes, like I was saying before, the division comes not out, of this, not out of a desire to tear things apart, but just out of a desire to see something that's not being done, done. But you've got to take that tension between what is and what is not and say, I will be a part of making sure this part of it gets taken care of. And too often what people do is they say, I don't like the way they're doing it. There's this stuff that's not getting done, and I'm out of here. And maybe, just maybe, God has put that on your heart because you're the person that's supposed to make sure that that part of the vision gets fulfilled. That's why this is so important. Because the unity and vision of this church hangs on the buy-in of every one of us who call this our church home. It hangs on that that we have agreed upon and personally committed ourselves to the big picture and we see where each of us fits in that. And that's why we're telling people, start praying, Lord, help me to see people the way you see them. Help me see things the way you see them. Break my heart with the things that break your heart so I can find my place in this grand vision of reconciling the world. So that I can say with my life in that place where I live, in that church, in those communities, I did my part. Because that's what it comes down to. The reason Nehemiah had such clout is he was all in. He was holding nothing back. And for a church to fulfill its vision, that's what it takes The reason that these nobles had no qualms about making a buck, the reason these these officials had no, no reservations at all about using this as an opportunity to take care of themselves was they never bought into the vision in the first place. They didn't care about the vision. They were in it for themselves. 
And that was the problem. That's why it didn't bother them to make a buck on the side. Because they weren't in it for the vision. They were in it for themselves. They didn't buy into the vision in the first place. And in contrast to that, to that Nehemiah forego, forewent a lot of the things that he could have legally claimed. But he said, I'm not going to do it. Because the vision is more important. Listen, folks. I can stand up here and preach about unity. And everybody will say, yeah, yeah, we need unity. Because everybody wants unity. But until each and every one of us says, this is my part. This is my part. This is what I'm doing for the vision and the unity of my church. It will nothing, be nothing more than talk. It takes people committed to a vision. And I'm almost out of time, so we're going to go to the last element. In all of this, keep focused on what's important. Because Nehemiah knew why he was doing what he was doing, and he was so committed to it, and the people rallied around that, because of all of that, it was what he was doing all along was keeping his focus where it needed to be. There were all kinds of distractions, some from the outside, some from the inside, but he kept focus on what needed to be done. The, the journey goes on. They're in chapter 6 now. And they're in the home stretch. They have overcome all of these obstacles. The, 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 the ridicule that they were getting, people just ignored them and kept with the work. The division and stuff that happened on the inside, they took care of that. They got back to work. And so now the vision, it's almost done. The wall is almost completed. In fact, it says the whole wall was built to its full height, not a single gap left. The only thing, there was only one thing left to do, and that was to simply hang the doors on the gates. The wall was completed. They were in the home stretch. Everything was done. And wouldn't you know it, just when you thought it was safe, up shows Tobiah, Sanballat, and Geshem again. You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. These guys keep showing, who are those guys? They, they see what's happening here, that the, the, the job's being completed. It's, it's going to be finished. And so what they do is they send they send a messenger to Nehemiah. Sanballat and Geshem send this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Now, here's the thing. Find out later, part of it was a plot to kill Nehemiah. But he doesn't know that at the time. All he sees right now is this is a distraction from the work. See, as the wall is getting finished, all of a sudden the governors from nearby areas, they realize, okay, we're going to have to live with these guys. So it would be natural for them to contact him and say, okay, we see you're, you're, you know, you're, you're serious about this. We see that, the, that this is going to happen. So we, we're all going to be neighbors, so we're going to have to learn to get along. Let's meet together and kind of work out the terms of peace. How are we going to work together in all this? And that's what it sounds like it's going to be. It isn't until later that he finds out it was actually a plot to kill him. But, but, and in fact, he said they sent that message to him four times. And every time he, they sent it, he gave him the same answer. And this is the answer. This is, a, this is worth memorizing. His message back to them was this. I am carrying on a great work and I cannot go down. I am carrying on a great work and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to go down to you? What he sees is this is just a distraction. The job is almost done. Everything's done except the doors on the gate. But I can't stop now because it's still not completed. If I left now, the work would stop and it would be 95% finished, but it wouldn't be done. And what he is doing is he is keeping focused on what needs to be done right now. 
The doors still need to be hung. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. And here's the thing. When you discover God's vision for your life, when you see how it fits with his grander vision for this world and how it fits with, the, with your church family, what you begin to understand is what you are doing is God's work. And it is a great work because it's God's work. And it will keep you from being distracted because what happens is vision gets fuzzy when it gets filled with distractions. And a lot of times the distractions are not even bad things. A lot of times the distractions are even good things. It would be a good thing to work out a peace process with your neighbors. But for right now, it's a distraction. And he says, I can't give up the work. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. And here's the thing. We said it in the very beginning. The clearer your vision becomes, the easier decision-making becomes. When you know what it is you're supposed to be doing and you keep focused on what's important, it helps you be able to say no to all the other stuff. And if your vision isn't clear, if it's still fuzzy and cloudy, then you end up saying yes to a bunch of stuff and you don't do anything. And what made Nehemiah successful and what gave him the staying power was he concentrated at the time on what was important. The project was not finished. And so I cannot come down. Commitment to your vision, our commitment as a church to the vision, will keep us focused on what's important. And when we understand, and when you understand in your own life what is truly important, how God has called you and the vision he's given you and your part and your role and what you're supposed to do with your life in this world at this time, then everything else, when that becomes clear, everything else gets a lot easier to make a decision about. Because the clearer your vision the greater focus you have on your direction, the easier it is to say no to distractions. And what you find through all of these roadblocks and speed bumps and detours and all the stuff that Nehemiah encountered in this whole project, what you find over and over again is his commitment to go back to God. He keeps going back in prayer. He gets the vision at his birth in prayer. He faces a roadblock. He goes to God in prayer. A blistering prayer, but a prayer nonetheless. <laughs> He faces an obstacle. He he goes back to God in prayer. And in fact, here's what he says at the end of Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 9. He says, They were all trying to fight and us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, Now, Lord, strengthen my hands. I'm focused on your vision. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm going to remember why I'm doing it and I'm going to give myself to making it fit with everybody else. But now, Lord, strengthen my hands. Help me to keep going. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.